what, what, what can we do? What are we supposed to do when we are wrongly accused? Uh, and um, we learned that we should pray to the Lord for vindication and deliverance, that, that there is a proper response that we can have even when somebody, somebody wrongly accuses us. Well, here in Psalm 27, we have a very similar theme, but the immediate danger is not a wrong accusation like it was in Psalm 26. Instead, it's an imminent attack from an enemy. So it's not a wrong accusation, but an imminent attack of enemies who want to destroy us. So what is a believer supposed to do when enemies attack? And David gives us three answers, and they are these. Find confidence in God, pray to God for help, and then wait on him to respond. So find confidence of God or simply trust in God, pray to God for help, and then wait for him to respond. So let's, let's take a look at the psalm together. I'll read it, and you follow along, and then we'll, we'll go through it together. This is the word of God. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. One thing I have asked from the Lord, that shall I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. For in the day of trouble he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice and be gracious to me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, Your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me, nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and such as breathe out violence. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. When enemies attack, believers put their confidence in God. They find a way to put their trust in God. And then they respond with prayer, and patient expectation. So first, when opposition arises, believers find confidence in God, verses 1 through 6. When, oppositions arise, or when opposition arises or when enemies attack, believers find confidence in God. Are you in a life-threatening position right now? Are you in a situation where you are being attacked by an enemy? Well, as a believer, you can go through that situation without fear because you trust in God. You, you have seen God to be true to his word. You have seen God deliver in the past. And so because of that, you can put your confidence in him. Notice the situation that David finds himself in in verse 2. 
When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my en- enemies, they stumbled and fell. David remembers a time, so this is not immediately, but he, he's saying there was a time before when evildoers were opposed to me when they were attacking me, and I remember what happened then. They stumbled and fell. In other words, God caused them to stumble and fall. These enemies here are described as wanting to devour his flesh at the beginning of verse 2. They're like the ravenous animal, ready to tear him apart. And yet, David can say, listen, I don't fear in this kind of situation. When my enemies are attacking me, I am not fearful. Why? Because I have my confidence in God. Do you recognize that there's an inverse connection between our confidence in God and our fear of man? That is, the more that we have confidence in God, the less we will fear man. Or we could say it the opposite way, right? The more that we fear man, the less we'll have confidence in God. And let me show you that in the text, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. So there's the confidence in God. And then what does he say? Whom shall I fear? So because I have confidence in God, he is my light and my salvation. We'll talk about what that means. Whom shall I fear, right? I don't have to fear anybody. That's the, that's the idea. The, it's, the implied answer is, whom shall I fear? Implied answer? No one. Because I have my confidence in my light, in my salvation. Then look at the next line of verse 1. Here's the confidence. The Lord is the defense of my life. And so, here's the question, whom shall I dread? Is there any man that I need to fear and any person I need to fear? Any nation? The answer is no. There's no one. Verse 3, same idea. Though a host encamp about me or against me, my heart will not fear. Though war rise up against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. And I think we could supply the words, I shall be confident, not myself, but in God. So, the more confidence that we have in God, not just some Pollyannic view of God, oh, God's going to make everything all right, but, but based on his character, what we know about him, and his promises, the more we have confidence, trust in God for who he is and what we've seen him do, the less we will fear man. So let's look at this, uh, what it means here when he puts his confidence in God, his light. Verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Darkness in the scriptures often used as a metaphor for judgment. We talked about this on Sunday morning and Sunday school, the ten plagues. Remember that then Christ on the cross is a, a form of God's judgment. Well, by contrast, light in the scripture is often used as a metaphor for truth and blessing. And so when he says that the Lord is my light, he is my ruler, the one who provides for me all the blessings, the refuge that I need. And that's my God. He is my light, my and my salvation, my deliverer, my refuge. And so when we see God in that way, as our refuge, our strength, our, our provider, when we see God in the face of opposition, it weakens the hold that enemies have on us. That's why the next phrase is, whom shall I fear? The more confidence I am in that first phrase, you know, do we say it like this? The Lord is my light? Maybe. He might be this time. Or is it, 
like David is stating it as an actual statement. The Lord is my light, not a question. I know that God is my light and my salvation. Therefore, what do I have to fear? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who will bring a charge against God's chosen one? Who is it that condemns? That's what Romans 8 says. We're going to look at that this Sunday morning. Uh, that very passage. And, and it, this, this passage here in Psalm 27 reminds me very much of that because the more confidence that we have in God, the less fear we have of men. At the second part of verse 1, it says that the Lord is my defense. So he's my light, my salvation, and then the, defun- the defense of my life. So he's, he's not only my refuge, the one that I go to, but he's also the one who defends me. He kind of guards me. He's like a wall that's set up before me, between me and my enemy. And since God is our defender, like he was for David, as we see him in that way, we, we, do, we don't fear our enemies and the potential outcome that they can bring from their, from their, um, from their power. That's why the next line is, whom shall I dread? They, they don't phase us. We have an expectation of what God will do for us. Notice this expression of trust here in verse 3. He says, though a host encamp me, that is a host of enemies, my heart will not fear. He's saying, listen, I'm not going to fear in this situation because I already know who's on my side. And so the focus here in these first three verses is, we could say it this way, no fear. Right? In verse 1, whom shall I fear? Whom shall I dread? Verse 3, My heart will not fear. And then the end of verse 3, I shall be confident. So what about you? Are you prone to worry? What is worry? Right? Is it not a fear of what man can do to us, or at least a fear of what our circumstances can do to us? And I would say that the more that we worry, right, that's this way, the more that we worry, the less we have confidence in God. And so, if you are prone to worry, then then you need to grow in your confidence in God. Who has ever added a single hour to his life by worrying? Isn't that what Jesus asks in Matthew 6? Who's ever done that? In other words, worrying does us no good, does it? And so don't worry about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, what you'll put on. Why? Why don't we have to worry, according to Matthew 6? Because God knows what you need before you even ask. So don't worry. So how is it that we grow in trusting God? If Okay, I know I worry too much. I know I need to trust God more. I don't. I, I can even think in times when I'm actually worrying, I think I need to stop worrying and I need to trust God, but how do I do that? You been there? The answer to that question is found in Psalm 9. Why don't you turn there? And uh, this is a verse I often quote, but I think it's just good to to see it here in the text. It's a verse that's helped me a lot. And I think it would be encouragement to you, and perhaps one that you would memorize, uh, particularly if you struggle with worry. Psalm 9, verse 10. So how do we trust God, is the question. Those who know your name, verse 10 says, those who know your name, will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. 
So how is it that we trust, let's just take a step back here, how is it that we come to trust anyone? The example I've used before is, you know, if you had $100 and you wanted somebody to hold on to it, are you going to just take the next person that's driving down the road or the next person walking down the street and say, hey, can you hold on to this for me? And I'll be back here this time tomorrow and I want you to give it back to me. How do you come to trust in a person so that they'll be able to do something that, that you can put your confidence in? Okay? You don't have as much confidence in that person walking down the street, do you? But you do. hopefully, you have that much confidence in a family member. right? Because you found them to be trustworthy. How much more trustworthy is God? You see, the, the reason that we don't trust God as much as we ought, and we could say it this way, the reason that we worry more than we should is because we don't know God as well as we should. That's what verse 10 says, isn't it? Those who know your name, that is, they, they don't just know your name. I know the name God. No, it's talking about his whole, what his name represents, which is his reputation, his character, his actions, what he's done in the past, what he's doing now, what he will do. Those who know that, know all those things intimately, those are the kinds of people that do what? Verse 10. Those who know your name will put their trust in you. The more you know God, the more you will trust God. And so that is a lifelong process. Don't think, I'm not a worrier, I, I must trust God really well. Okay, some of you just are a little bit more laid back and you're just not prone to worry as much as others. And you probably have some other, uh, you have some other faults and some other vices that that plague you, like pride, perhaps. Hey, I'm, I don't worry, right? But, but, the, but the point is, I think we all do it to some extent. We, we worry about things that we can't control. And we worry about things that we think we can control. And, and the, the answer to that is, is to trust God more. Sounds cliche, but the way we trust God more is to know him better. So keep, keep working towards that end. Keep uh, developing your relationship with God. You'll find that you worry much less. You'll, you'll have confidence in God. So, back to Psalm 27. Since God is our deliverer, there's nothing to fear. And then verses 4 to 6. Being in the presence of God leads to greater confidence in God. In verses 4 to 6. Being in the presence of God lead, leads to greater confidence in God. David here is captivated by God's greatness and his blessings and as a result, he wants to experience God's presence even more. He wants to experience God's blessings even more. Notice what he says here. Um, verse 4, One thing I have asked from the Lord, that shall I seek. So let's stop there and, and just think about that for a second. What, what is the one thing that we ask of the Lord? Now, we probably all ask more than one thing, but, but if you had to... You know those word bubbles that they have now where they can just take a whole manuscript and they can tell you the words that are used most and they kind of make them appear bigger? If, if we took all of your prayers over the last year, what would the word bubbles be? What would the thought bubbles be? What would the ideas, what are the type, what's the main thing that you're asking for? Right, is it, is, is it freedom from conflict at work? Is it more money? Is it better health? Is it some kind of family situation or conflict? What, what is it that's, that's at the center of your prayer? Well, look at what David's answer is. 
One thing I've asked from the Lord, if you took all that I wanted and summarized it in one way, this is what it would be, verse 4, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. David was captivated by God. And the reason that he wanted to dwell with the Lord, and notice this is not talking about eternally. He's saying all the days of my life. So he's talking about his life here on earth. He's like, I want to be in God's presence here on the earth as long as I live. And why did he want to do that? The end of verse 4 gives us two reasons. Number one, to behold the beauty of the Lord. And number two, to meditate in his temple. Now, David's not saying that he wants to, to go to the temple more, just like we would say, you know, I, I, need, I want to go to church more, although I think we can certainly make application for that. But I think the point is he recognizes that the place where God show, chose to show his special presence in David's era and David's dispensation was in the temple. Right? The temple was not a, a man-made idea like, hey, let's figure out a way for us to have a meeting place with God, and maybe he'll come. That's not how it worked, was it? How, how did they know that God would come to such a place? Because God's the one who made the temple. He's the one who designed and gave them all of the, the blueprints for the temple and where it should be within their camp. It was actually supposed to be the centerpiece so that all the tribes were spread out from it, so that at the center of their camp they could see the the, the smoke of God's presence or the cloud of God's presence constantly there. David wanted to dwell with God. God had designed the temple to dwell with his people. And David's prayer is that he lives in the presence of God. My brother in his previous house had the words Coram Deo over his fireplace, which is Latin for before the face of God. And it comes from a principle, I think, really, that, that's here in, in Psalm 27, certainly many other places in the Scripture, but, but he wanted to constantly be in God's presence. And this is amazing, considering how much we like to hide from, from God. We, we like to hide because of our sin, right? We, we have these certain sins that we know God knows about, but we kind of hide ourselves in some way, maybe just not acknowledge that he's there, even though he is. David wanted to live constantly in the presence of God. I want to, every day of my life, live in the presence of God, beholding his glory, learning from him. Do you see that in verse 4? One thing I've asked, one thing, that I may dwell. Not may I come and visit the house of the Lord occasionally, but I will just dwell there all the time in God's presence so that I can see his beauty and I can meditate on his temple, uh, in his temple. So living before the face of God becomes a source for us to, to just dwell on God's greatness, his character, his beauty, and his blessing, but also to dwell on his, presence, or his protection, verses 5 and 6. For in the day of trouble he will conceal me in his tabernacle, in the secret place of his tent he will hide me, he will lift me up on a rock, and now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will praise, sing praises to the Lord. David can look to dwell with God because he knows that with God there is protection and victory, something about which he will sing. And so this goes along with what we saw in verse 3. Our protection and our ability 
with the Lord's strength, to be fearless in the face of trouble is bound up in our confidence with God. The more we rest in God's power, the more we come to have that desire like David has. That I want to know God more. Why is it, do you think, that, God, that David wanted to know God more? Well, one is he loved him, right? But also so that he could grow in his trust for him. That's how his trust was so sky high. That's how he could say, what do I have to dread? The more we rest in God's power, the more we rest when threats come. So when opposition arises, number one, believers find their confidence in God. And then number two, I'm going to just combine the second and third one that I mentioned earlier. When opposition arises, believers pray to God and wait patiently for Him. When opposition opposition arises, believers pray to God and wait patiently for Him. Verses 7 to 14. So we could say, if we're looking at it from David's perspective, or listening to David, just say, well... You know, it's one thing, David, for you to say you have all this confidence in God and that you don't dread anything, you don't fear your enemies, but it's another thing to live your life like that. And, and that's what we see here. We see not just a, a verbal expression, I am confident in God, I have no fears. But here we see an expression of his confidence, his trust, and the way that we see his confidence, his trust in God expressed is through first praying to God, And second, by waiting on God. So when opposition arises, when the enemies attack, we need to put our confidence in God, make sure that that we have confidence in God, and then we need to pray to Him and wait for Him. So here's the second one. Pray to God, verses 7 to 12. Here he prays for protection and blessing and deliverance. Protection, blessing, and deliverance. In the midst of his opposition, he says... Verse 7, Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, and be gracious to me, and answer me. And then, God calls out in verse 8. When you said, Seek my face, so David's recalling what God had said. And this word, seek, in the Hebrew, is actually a plural. So, it's not you individually, David, you seek my face. David, I'm talking to you. No, he's saying to all the people... All you people seek my face. And so in response to that, David says, look what he says in verse 8. He doesn't say, your face, O Lord, we shall seek. He says, I shall seek. So in other words, he takes personal application from what God has said generally. This is how we can respond to the word of God as well, right? God gives a, a, a widespread a, a, a call with a lot of breadth, or a lot, a lot of breadth, yes, Okay, and, and we don't say, we're all going to respond to you, God. Now, in some cases, that's completely appropriate. But, but what we do is we respond individually, don't we? Okay, right now, I'm not worried about this other person and this person and this person. What I'm worried about is, okay, worried, concerned. Let's say concerned, because that's a, that's a good thing. So we're concerned about what God is saying here. He's saying to us generally, and I'm taking it personally, individually, and I'm going to respond. That's how David does God says, all you people seek my face. And David says, God, I will seek your face. He responds personally. He desires to be with God. He wants to seek God because he loves being with God, as we saw in verses 4 through 6. Verse 9, he prays for a blessing. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. So he's like 
a child who, as he gets older, is not so much fearful of his father's punishment or wrath as much as he's fearful of his father's disfavor. Right? When I was five years old, ten years old, I was fearful that my dad would come home and get the paddle out, right? That's a good, healthy fear for a child who's wanting to act up, right? But I hope that, that you were like me when you were 20 and 25, you weren't worried about your dad spanking you, right? Instead, you were, you were concerned about something else, weren't you? You are concerned about bringing shame to your father or about your father having disfavor for you turning away from you. This is David. See, he's moved beyond this kind of um, infantile type of thinking about God, like, oh, what's he going to do to me if I do something? And he starts to move towards, God, I love this relationship, this fellowship that we have so much that I can't bear to think of you turning your face away from me. That is, that you would stop pouring out your blessing and that you would just be disappointed with me. I can't bear to think that. That's what he's saying here in verse 9. So, and so he prays that way. Don't abandon me. Don't forsake me, God. I can't imagine harming that fellowship that we have. And David's confident that God will not abandon him. Verse 10, he says, For my father and my mother forsaken me, have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. So even when his closest family members abandon him, and it could be that he's talking about through opposition. There's no indication that David's parents left him in that way. It's probably that David's just grown older. And what happens when you grow older is your parents eventually pass away, right? And so he's probably saying, they have abandoned me and that I can't depend on them anymore. I can't go to them for counsel. And so do you know who I can always go to? It's you, God. I can Always be confident that you will be there. You will never abandon me. You'll never die. You'll never go to sleep. You'll never go on vacation. Verses 11 and 12, a prayer for deliverance. Here in verse 11, he prays that he would know God more. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. So why does he want to know God more? I asked that earlier. Why does David want to know God more? Part of it is so that he'll trust God more. Part of it is that he loves God. But here he says, help me to know you more. Why? What does the end of the verse say? Because of my foes. What were his foes doing, do you suppose? His enemies, like probably some of your enemies... We're looking for something to accuse him of and use it to destroy him. Right? They just look for a little bit of a chink in your armor, right? You, you think you're so good. Your character, oh yeah, you. And you're always going to church and they're just looking for something so they can use that against you and against your relationship with God. And, and David saying, God, help me to know you more because I don't want to have, I don't want to give any fuel to my enemies. Have you ever thought about living righteously in that way? Most of the time, our, our desire for holy living is self-centered, isn't it? We don't want the consequences of sin, or we want to experience the blessings of God, and those aren't bad. But I think here's another motivation. Because we are complex people, we can't just use one motivation. We are people that are motivated by multiple things. And one of the motivations that the Scriptures give us is so that we don't give fuel for our enemies when we fall. 
because they're watching, and you can be sure they are watching. You may think your coworker, who's an unbeliever, is just kind of glazing over when you do whatever you do, when you go throughout your day, when you respond differently to life crises than they do. You may think that they're not watching, but they are watching. You may think that your family member and your neighbors are not watching, but they're watching. Okay, and, and some of them are the cynical type where they are so far from God that they are looking for a way to accuse you and to accuse God, uh, accuse you before God and accuse, uh, accuse you before others. We have enemies like that that are looking to tear us down, and so we need to live uprightly all the time. But we cannot do that without the help of God. And that's why David makes such a good example for us. He's, he says, God, I, I need to know you more. I can't just work up enough like unction so that I can live a holy life on my own. He's saying, no, you, God, have to teach me. You have to help me to know you. And as you do, it will keep me from feeding fuel to their fire. The less that David knows God, the more opportunity that they have to destroy him. Verse 12, Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, as such as breathe out violence. It's one, for that, one thing for the enemies to make a false accusation against a believer. But do you know what they love even more? It's to make a true accusation against us because of something that we did. And how we respond, that doesn't mean we can't, you know, we just have to put on this show before everybody. No, live, live in a righteous way. But, but when you sin, respond well, right? Get back up. Own up to your sin. Don't treat your sin like the world treats it. I think all those things we have to keep in mind. Finally, David waits for God. So when opposition arises, believers find their confidence in God, verses 1 to 6. They pray to God, verses 7 to 12. And then verses 13 and 14, they wait patiently for God. They wait patiently for God. The expression of David's confidence is seen in how he dwells on, he meditates on God's beauty and God's blessings and how he has acted in the past. David's confidence in God is also expressed in his praying to God, that he's just asking for deliverance and help, but also it's expressed in his waiting on God. And last week I, I said that our trust in God is often expressed in two ways. Waiting on God, and then what was the other one? Do you remember? Taking a risk for God. Right? Sometimes we need, to be like, we need to be like Jonathan against the Philistines in 1 Samuel 13 and 14. When he didn't wait on God, because that wasn't a time where he should wait on God. Instead, he trusted on God by taking a risk. He said, I know what my God can do, and I know that my God has the power to save by what? By many or by few. And so, then he says, I don't know how it's going to turn out, but perhaps the Lord will deliver us. And so he takes a risk, doesn't he? For the sake of his own life. So that's one way that we can trust in God. But another way that we trust in God is by waiting on God. Because the other, sometimes the, the extreme is that we want to move out ahead of God, where God said not to go, or he's not, 
ready to lead us there. And we move out ahead of him instead of waiting on him. And what David is calling us to do is the second one. It is to wait on God for his timing. And the reason that David can wait on God and be confident in God while he's waiting is because he's seen God work before. Look at verse 13. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So he was confident in God's promise that that he would meet with God. And if he had not seen God help him before, he would have been in despair. And then in verse 14, David gives himself a spiritual pep talk. The verb wait here says wait for the Lord is a singular verb, which suggests to me that David is speaking to himself. So in the Hebrew, can't make it out in the English, but in the Hebrew, the word that's translated wait is singular, which means he's not saying, all you people, you all need to wait on the Lord. Follow my example and wait on the Lord. No, he's saying you individually. So it could be that he just turned and started talking to somebody, but more likely, he's talking to himself. And he's given himself a spiritual pep talk. He's saying, because I have seen God's goodness, verse 13, or because you, David, have seen God's goodness, you, David, need to wait on the Lord. And, and if you think it's kind of weird to, to give yourself a spiritual pep talk, consider what we do when we sing the song, Arise, My Soul, Arise. Right? Who are we talking to there? In that case, you know, a lot of our songs are directed toward God or towards one another. But in that one, it's actually talking to ourselves. Right? We're singing to ourselves, Arise, my soul. Shake off thy guilty fears. Reminds us of the cross and what Christ has done for us and, and kinds of, kind of causes us to get up out of our despair and remember who we are in Christ. Or be still, my soul, right? In other words, wait on the Lord. And so David's saying, soul, wait on the Lord. God is good. God will bring about vindication and victory and strength and courage. Now, when we think of waiting, sometimes I think we think of passive inactivity. Like, you know, with our hands in our pocket, just like, man, where is this person not doing anything? But, but this kind of waiting is actually an active trusting in God and his promises. It's, it's looking at the circumstances of life, and then instead of just like, I'll do nothing, it is, okay, I'm looking at these circumstances all around me, the enemy's attacking, but now I need to, this is the active part, I need to look at who God is and, and remember what God has done And then I say to myself, like the song, Be Still My Soul, Soul, the Lord is on your side. So bear patiently the cross of grief or pain and leave it to your God to order and provide because in every change, He, God, will faithful remain. Remember that, soul, because your God is your heavenly friend so that although you, soul, go through thorny ways, it will lead to a what? A joyful end. So we say, when we look at God, so that's, do you see that, the, act, the 
proactivity there, is that the word, that has to be going on. It's not just, man, I see all these things going on around me, and what are you going to do, God? No, it is. I see all these things going around me, and now I'm going to focus my attention. My soul is focused now on God and what he's done. And it's not just, it could be just in meditation, but but being reminded of his word, who he is, what he's done, maybe even personal times when God has delivered me. Like, can you think of specific specific times in which God has delivered you physically, spiritually, financially? Okay, just maybe recounting some of those. Do you see how it requires action on our part? So, when enemies attack, when opposition arise, believers find their confidence in God. They pray to God and they wait on God. Do you find confidence in God and His Word? If so, in what way is that expressed? And I think it should be expressed in, in these three ways at least. Certainly could be more, but, but it is expressing our confidence verbally. That's what David did. He said, you know, if I could ask one thing of the Lord, it would be that I could dwell in His house forever. And I want, I want God to know that. I want other people to know that. And then it's also expressed in his prayer to God that, that, you know, when opposition arises, I don't just kind of sit on my hands or something. I, I, I actively lift up my voice to God in prayer and trust that he's going to, to respond. And then, you know, I just wait on God. I, I'm confident that he will deliver. He will ultimately deliver. And so if it means that I die without receiving the promise like Hebrews 11 people did, then, then so be it. David certainly wants to be rescued from his enemies, but his greatest desire is found in verse 4. His greatest desire is not to be delivered from his enemies. That's maybe an immediate or a more temporal desire. His greatest desire is to dwell in God's presence. Verse 8, your face, Lord, will I seek. Verse 11, teach me your way. Have we learned what Mary exemplified for us in Luke 10? That is, that the, the most important thing that we can do in life is not to get overwhelmed with the busyness of service, right? I, I got to be doing, doing, doing all the time. It's not to be overwhelmed with ministry, but the most important thing is what? Luke 10, do you remember? To sit at the feet of Jesus to, to hear from God. Remember Martha? Jesus, tell her to help me. And Jesus says no because she has already learned what is most important and I will not take that away from her. And so David, I think, is, had learned that same lesson that Mary had learned. And he learned that the best thing in life to be at the feet of God. And the question I think we have to ask our, ourselves is, have we learned that same lesson? Because there is no better place. When, when enemies attack, the best place to be is at the feet of God, trusting in Him, praying to Him, expressing our confidence in Him. Any questions or comments?